The scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 10, beginning in verse 21 and reading through the end of the chapter. And Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the heavens, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness that may be felt. And Moses stretched forth his hand toward the heavens, and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. And Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve Yahweh, only let your flocks and your herds be stayed. Let your little ones also go with you. And Moses said, You must also give into our hands sacrifices and ascension offerings that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. There shall not be left a hoof, for from it we shall take to serve Yahweh our God. And we do not know with what we must serve Yahweh until we come there. And Yahweh emboldened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. And Pharaoh said to him, Go from me, take heed to yourself, see my face no more. For in the day you see my face you shall die. And Moses said, You have spoken well, I will see your face again no more. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And so we pray that you would illumine the way before us, that we might faithfully serve you, that your spirit would direct us in the truth, and that we might see Christ all the more clearly again this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've reached the ninth plague this morning in our study of Exodus, I'm almost tempted to, to treat this introduction like a classroom setting, asking various questions by way of review on how the first nine plagues are structured and the various patterns that are demonstrated across them. For instance, how many cycles of plagues are there? And hopefully by now you would answer that there are three cycles of three plagues. And then I would ask, what do the three plagues of each cycle generally, to what do they generally correspond? To which I would hope you could correspond that they generally, that they correspond to the triple-decker universe that God has made. And of what does that triple-decker universe consist? Well, waters, land, and then the heavens. Also, by now, I'd hope that you could tell me that plagues 1, 4, and 7 correspond to water, 2, 5, and 8 to land, and 3, 6, and 9 to the heavens or atmosphere. You know, if there was a quiz, hopefully everyone would get an A. So if I were to ask those questions, then hopefully the conversation would follow something along the lines of what I've just described. Now, over the last few weeks, we've also noted some important connections between earlier and later plagues, particularly foreshadowing the ninth and tenth. During the seventh plague, which included the darkness of the hailstorm, where was refuge to be found for the men and animals in the field? In the house. Otherwise, it meant death. There's a similar pattern in the eighth plague as well. And now in the ninth plague, darkness itself comes, which prepares for the tenth plague, which even hints at what could possibly be next for the Egyptians. We've also noted how the intensity level of the plagues has certainly been raised in this third and final cycle, though we might naturally question, uh, we might question that given the fact that nothing gets destroyed and apparently no one dies uh, in this present plague, which seems pretty tame in comparison to what's come before. 
we'll ponder that further later on. So let's, let's begin to make our way through this latter portion of chapter 10, considering what the text is presenting to us and how it dresses, uh, addresses our faith and lives today. We'll start with a bonus question for extra credit. How are third plagues in each cycle introduced? Well, they're not. Yahweh gives Moses a command and he acts upon it, even as verse 21 informs us, and said Yahweh to Moses, stretch out your hand under the heavens and it will be darkness upon the land of Egypt, a groping causing darkness. The command for Moses to stretch out his hand under the heavens is familiar and the result will be darkness upon the land of Egypt, a phrase we've encountered often over the course of the plagues. And then the last part of the verse mentioned that it's a darkness that causes groping. What, is, what does that mean? Well, it's worth noting where else this verb is used, particularly on two significant, significant occasions in Genesis. The first is found in Genesis 27, where it's used two times. In verse 12, questioning his mother Rebekah's plan for ensuring that he would receive the blessing by tricking Isaac, Jacob says, Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. Then in verse 22, so Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. So feel, felt, well, it's the same word used here in relation to the darkness. Similarly, in Genesis 31, 34, in that scene when Rachel humiliates Laban's idols, now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. Now, we might immediately think uh, the word groping has negative connotations, which, of course, it can. But it more basically means to feel about blindly or uncertainly in search. And that's a fitting description and probably one to which well, many of us can relate. You know, if you get up in the middle of the night and don't want to turn a light on, what do you do? Well, you, you put your hands out in, in front of you and you feel for things or reach for things so you know where you're going. Or if you've ever been um, been somewhere that's pitch black or been, or maybe you've been blindfolded, you're playing some game for some reason, what do you do? Well, you take small, careful steps and you carefully reach out in front of you so you don't run into something so you can find your way. Or maybe you've seen a TV show or a movie where, you know, someone's in a cave and a light goes out, uh, they drop it, and then they're kind of groping around in the dark looking for it. Well, that's the main idea here. English translations typically describe it as a darkness that can be felt, which is certainly a possible rendering of the word, and that also has some interesting implications as well. Verse 22, And Moses stretched out his hand unto the heavens, and there was darkness of darkness in all the land land of Egypt three days. Now, in a break with the expected rhythm, there's no mention of Moses' rod here, just his hand. You know, we would expect the rod of God to be mentioned as in plagues 7 and 8, but it's not. Why? Hard to know for sure. Now, the description of the darkness is interesting. The Hebrew takes two different words for darkness and and joins them together. A similar example is the phrase holy of holies. And though that's using the same word twice, in Hebrew, the doubling of a word is for the sake of emphasis. So here, by using two synonyms for darkness, a similar effect is achieved. It's it's darkness of darkness or the darkest of darkness. So it doesn't get any darker than this. The implications of which are described in the next verse. But the text specifically tells us that the darkness lasted three days. 
What are some of the implications of that detail, or what else should it remind us of? The number three is the number of completion. Uh, darkness is certainly indicative of decreation. And if we think of God actively creating for six days, then three is half of that. And so we've got half of, the, of a decreation week taking place in the story. Still more, there were three hours of darkness over the whole land leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus. And arguably, Jesus was in the darkness of the tomb for three days, in a manner of speaking. So how dark was the darkness of darkness? Verse 23. They did not see a man his brother, and did not rise a man from his place three days. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwelling places. Now here's where we need to think a bit harder about what the text is saying, and also recognize that this isn't some natural phenomenon on steroids, or uh, that there were particulates in the air, because that would mean the Egyptians uh, would have trouble breathing, that their breathing would have been affected, and there's nothing in the text that indicates as such. What's being described here is a darkness that causes groping, a, a, a darkness that's thick. I can remember as a kid when we visited Mark Twain's cave in Hannibal, Missouri, as part of the family trip we were on. And during the tour of the cave at one point, the guide stopped. Um, she put her hand on the light switch and told us she was going to turn out the lights. She even told us that we wouldn't be able to see our hand right in front of our face. And my nine-year-old self at the time didn't believe her because I couldn't imagine it being that dark. Off went the light. And for as much as I was waving my hand right in front of my face, I couldn't see it. The cave was pitch black. After a few moments, she turned the light back on, and so on we went with the tour. But there's still something different about the darkness described in Egypt, isn't there? You know, don't you naturally wonder why they didn't just light some candles and pretend the power is out for three days? We have plenty of light in this room right now from the lights overhead, from the windows, and even if we were to turn out the lights, we could still see pretty well. If we close the blinds, that might make it a little bit darker, but we could still readily see. When we have a service here at night, things are certainly darker when the lights go off, but it's never pitch black. As soon as there's any light, you can see around you to a degree. Well, the, But the implication seems to be here with the, the text that the air itself the atmosphere was black. See, we can see each other right now because we have light, but also because the air is transparent, we can see through it, and because it's translucent, light can pass through it. What if that stopped being the case? It could very well be that the Egyptians lit candles, but imagine that light not being able to shine out and just being swallowed up by the darkness. You know, even if there was some source of light, they clearly couldn't see to navigate their way around. Everyone stayed home. And if they had managed to get to the, together, they couldn't see one another anyway. Now, basically, Yahweh made all of Egypt afraid of the dark, and understandably so. Also keep in mind that there's nothing in the text that indicates that the sun was darkened in any way, but that the land of Egypt... Egypt was darkened, although we assume Yahweh darkened the sun over Egypt for three days in some miraculous way, again, even though the text doesn't explicitly say that. But a solar eclipse doesn't last for three days, and nor does it produce absolute darkness. 
Nevertheless, the plague of darkness is an attack on one of the three major Egyptian gods. Recall the first was the Nile, and the Nile was one of the major gods. Of course, the last plague, the tenth plague, is against Pharaoh, against his firstborn. Now, here in the ninth, it's an attack against Amon-Re, who was the personification of the sun, their chief deity. And when he would rise in the morning, he represented life, light, and even resurrection. But when he set, he pictured death, judgment, and hopelessness. Well, what effect do you think that three days of darkness had on the Egyptians? Could it be that they were thinking that Well, that Yahweh had killed their chief God or that they were under death and judgment. And here's where we have to try to come to grips with the severity of this plague. Three days of absolute unimaginable darkness would feel like the end of the world to the Egyptians. Ironically, we might say the Egyptians are confined to their homes, but their homes aren't a source of refuge. You know, where does the text say that possible refuge might be found? the dwelling places of Israel. But all the sons of Israel had light in their dwelling places. Interestingly enough, the term dwelling places makes an appearance in chapter 12 and verse 20 in conjunction with the Passover. That's not accidental. And what's the likely implication here? That the sons of Israel are the sources of light and there's refuge with them. Now, certainly the Egyptians would have heard about this and is further proof to bolster our understanding of the mixed multitude that departs with Israel at the Exodus. Even if they don't fully understand who Yahweh is or was, they knew enough to recognize that he was greater than the Egyptian gods and that he was and is bringing ruin to Egypt. And the light in the dwelling places of Israel is not only grace to Israel, but also to the Egyptians who take heed and align themselves with Yahweh and get into the Israelite dwellings when the angel of death passes over before the final plague. There's grace and judgment. Well, apparently after the three days of darkness, though it has, though it has passed, we read in verse 24, And Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go serve Yahweh, only your flocks and your herds be detained. Also your little ones may go with you. The commands to go and serve are present again, and Pharaoh seems to be a little bit more magnanimous in allowing the children, the little ones, to go. But what does he say should be left behind? Well, the flocks and herds. This could be a practical or even economic move on his part because of the decimation of the Egyptian flocks and herds from the plagues, and Israel had an abundance of them. Moses replies recorded in verses 25 and 26. But Moses said... Also, you must give in our hands sacrifices and ascension offerings, and we may make to Yahweh our God. Also, livestock goes with us, not will remain a hoof. For from them we take to serve Yahweh our God, and we do not know with what we serve Yahweh until we go there. Now, part of what might be factoring into Moses' demands is a legal argument that is further expounded upon in Deuteronomy 15:12 and following on how a master is to send out a slave or an indentured servant that has completed the time required and then is considered freed. There we find that the master is to give him gifts and let him go, which was likely part of the kind of common sense law in the ancient world of the day. And this may be reflected in the expression that Moses uses when he says that Pharaoh must set or give these into our hand. Uh, This is what is owed to Israel by Pharaoh, or something like that. Well, Moses may be making part of his argument along these lines, but even more so, he argues the practicality of their needing to worship Yahweh to serve him. 
and that in order for them to offer sacrifices and ascension offerings, they'll need livestock for that. Further, he states they won't fully know what they'll need until they get there, and so they need to go prepared. You know, they don't want to go out into the wilderness and then not have enough livestock for their feast with Yahweh. And then what do we read in verse 27? And Yahweh strengthened the heart of Pharaoh, and he was not willing to send them out. And this is the same expression used at the end of the previous section in verse 20. And it's quite possible that verse 27 marks the end of the pericope for the ninth plague. Um, of course, the chapter and verse divisions in our Bibles aren't always accurate, um, or at least reflecting the, the flow of the narrative. And that may be the case here. In verses 28 and 29 uh, belong to chapter 11 as part of, of the narrative. And that could very well be, though the exchange might just be a new wrinkle in the text, but Pharaoh's words to Moses here continue to express his anger, his continuing to kind of come unhinged, and the further depths of his sin. And Pharaoh said to him, Go from before me. Be on guard to yourself. You will not be caused again to see my face. For in the days you see my face, you will die. So Pharaoh kicks Moses out from before him, similar to verse 11, telling Moses to watch out, to take heed to himself, and of course threatens him with death. As a related aside, there appears to be some linguistic connections between the name for the Egyptians, uh, the Egyptian sun god Re or Ra, and the Hebrew word for evil, ra'ah, and then the verb for see, which also is ra'ah, sounds like ra'ah, but has different letters to it. So think about this. The, the Egyptians couldn't see one another in the darkness. Now there will be darkness where Pharaoh and Moses won't see one another. But then there's a measure of irony in Pharaoh's threat of death because death is coming to his family and people in the next plague. Verse 29, and Moses said, Thus as you speak, I will not again see your face. Now, what's said here is brought into question a bit by what we read in chapter 12 and verse 31 when Pharaoh summons or calls Moses and Aaron in the night, which seems to imply that Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh, though the text doesn't explicitly say that. Now, there isn't a mistake, uh, there isn't a mistake in the, isn't a mistake in the narrative. There are simply details we don't have to make a strong conclusion, but it's intriguing that Pharaoh specifically refers to day and Moses is called at night. And so maybe Moses didn't see Pharaoh's face again. Interesting to think about and perhaps will become clearer to us somewhere uh, along the way. Now, a couple of questions uh, of related questions that we do well to raise and answer is, well, why is Pharaoh coming under this judgment? Or why is Pharaoh held accountable for his actions against the sons of Israel? You know, maybe we'd say, well, he was, an, he was just this tyrant in the, um, in the ancient world, and isn't he a sense, in a sense, isn't he at liberty to treat the people under him as he sees fit? Well, of course, the answer is no, but why? Well, there's a theological answer to that for which we need to go back to Genesis. Of course, we need to go back to Genesis. And what do we read in Yahweh's promise to Abram in Genesis chapter 12? Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whom who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What's Pharaoh doing to the nation that has come from Abraham? Well, he's dishonoring them. And what does Yahweh promise to do in light of that? Bring about curse. 
which is precisely what has taken place in the plagues. Still more in chapter 17 of Genesis we read, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Abram, you know what that name means, Big Daddy, will be a father to a multitude of nations. So his name is changed to Great Big Daddy. Why does that matter? Well, what does Joseph tell his brothers in Genesis 45, 8? So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. As a father to Pharaoh, Joseph instructed him in the faith. And when we study Genesis 45, we consider that in some measure Egypt became a God-fearing nation through the teaching and influence of Joseph. Of course, that's not the case now. But not only is the present Pharaoh bucking against ancient common law, but he's also rebelling against his own history and how Joseph, uh, the Hebrew, was used mightily unto the preservation and prospering of Egypt. In other words, the case can be made that Pharaoh knows how he ought to be treating Israel. He had the Bible. The story was passed down to him. He was told the information. Israel exercised a spiritual fatherhood over Egypt, but Pharaoh is rebelling against that. And even as we noted Exodus patterns in Genesis all the way back at uh, the beginning of our study of Exodus in March, we can also make the case that there are Genesis patterns in Exodus. Consider two of the examples cited earlier. Isaac is blind, not only physically, but spiritually. And he's in rebellion against God's promises and word that Esau would serve Jacob. And he attempts, attempts to give the blessing to Esau. Thankfully, Rebekah thwarts his plan and the blessing is given to Jacob. But arguably, Pharaoh is a new Isaac. He's in the dark. He's blind and is rebelling against God's word. The promise is made to Abram and is coming under Yahweh's curse. Similarly, Pharaoh is a new Laban. Sons of Israel want to take their wives, children, and flocks to serve Yahweh, but Pharaoh continues to refuse to deal honestly with them. What were the chief ways in which Laban oppressed Jacob? Work, wives, and flocks. And in some measure, Laban was an idolater, even as we heard about his household gods earlier, which Rachel makes fun of and humiliates by sitting on them and stating it was her time of the month. And what was Laban doing in her tent? In her tent? Groping for his idols. He was in the dark. So what are a few final observations we can make in relation to this text, particularly in regards to our God and Savior, whom we are to know more fully from His Word? Well, even as we've seen from time to time over the course of the plagues, there's a mixture of grace and judgment, isn't there? Yahweh provides warnings throughout. He shows mercy. Where's the grace here? Light in the dwelling places of Israel. That's good news for the Egyptians because it indicates a way out from under the judgment that Yahweh is bringing. As one theologian quips, there's always grace and judgment until you're dead. And while the judgments here are for Pharaoh and Egypt's rebellion and they're on a large scale, nevertheless, as believers, isn't there a sense in which the judgments that sometimes come against us for our sin or even the fatherly discipline that our Heavenly Father brings against us, though it is painful, is still lined with grace? You know, we might find ourselves in a particular circumstance for our own willful rebellion or even our carelessness, and yet we might do well to recognize that things could be worse. And that the Lord is being merciful and gracious. 
even if the circumstances are hard and stressful. As the writer to the Hebrews tells us, all discipline for the present does not seem to be joy, but rather sorrow. We don't ignore that. Still more, the Lord is not at a loss for ways of getting the attention of his sons and daughters. And maybe some of the trials and tests come in bunches. And that's a good opportunity to be humble, to examine ourselves, our own heart and life, to pray, repent, and seek the Lord's mercy in the midst of it. And why would you do that? Well, in order to be trained by the discipline that has come, that afterward, and there is an after, you might yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness. See, this needs to be the disposition of our faith, recognizing the training that our Heavenly Father is exercising over us as His Son or as His daughter, and the discipline that comes is a mark that you belong to Him and He loves you. See, you're one of the King's kids, an identity received at your baptism, and He isn't willing to just let you go willy-nilly and do whatever you want. Now, He calls you to a life of faithfulness and obedience to His Word and commands, and He sees the disposition of your heart, and He holds you to His standard. Another facet of the text before us is to consider light. And really, the, we can argue there's a lot of darkness, of course, but let's look at it from the opposite side. Light and, and, and what is being taken from Pharaoh in Egypt in this plague and even in the judgment that would later come on the Roman Empire as John refers to a plague of darkness in Revelation 16.10. Darkness means what? Well, it means chaos, decreation. And when a nation or society are facing chaos in various forms, then there's a lack of light according to Christ and His Word. Light is necessary for sight, and sight is associated in the Bible with discernment and good judgment. Again, go back to our example of Isaac. He had poor sight, and he was making poor discernment and poor judgments. And even as we see here with Pharaoh or in other examples in the Bible or in history, what happens when the leader is in darkness? Well, the people are going to stumble about aimlessly and helplessly, and there will be an inability to judge with righteous judgment, which is part of the anguish that comes with darkness. As one scholar puts it, light is closely linked to life and energy in in nature and in the Bible. Without light, we cannot sustain life. Almost nothing can live in total darkness. So what do we need? More light. We always need more light. I remember hearing a story uh, about a debate that was taking place during the Westminster Assembly, which produced the Westminster Confession of Faith and and Catechisms. And and during a particular portion, um, when an argument was being presented, one of the divines, one of the members of of that assembly, was seen furiously writing on a piece of paper throughout um, the argument that he was hearing from, from the speaker. But then when it was his turn to speak, he, he, he stood up and did so. Apparently someone sitting next to him glanced over at the page to see what he'd written as he was making his reply. And over and over again, he'd written just one phrase. More light, Lord. And in the present days in which we live, we need more light. And we need to recognize that our Heavenly Father is the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And that every good gift and every maturing gift comes from above, from Him. And why does He want us to be mature? Because that's the goal. 
that we might grow up and be more like Christ, our big brother. See Paul's argument in Ephesians 4. And as he, as Christ is the light of the world, so we as the church are called to be lights. And what role are lights given on the fourth day of creation? They're given their job to rule. Lights are rulers. And if we're called to be lights, then we're called to be rulers. The city set on the hill ought to give forth light and not be put under a bushel. And so our God trains us and shapes us and brings us to become the rulers and kings that he needs in his kingdom. That process is slow and hard, but there is no other path to maturity. And there's not a moment of our lives that is wasted. Our, our God, the giver of good gifts, who isn't miserly at all, is bringing us to maturity and conformity to the image of His Son because He's in the business of creating lights for the world. He did so in Egypt for the Egyptians in making the lights shine in the dwelling places of the sons of Israel. And He's doing so now through His church, through His people. And as we behold the the darkness that has gripped our society on account of its sin and idolatry, and so many are groping about in the darkness, may the words of our Savior and King be all the more impressed upon our hearts and lives. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. O you who are the light of the minds that know you, the life of the souls that love you, and the strength of the wills that serve you, help us so to know you that we may truly love you, so to love you that we may fully serve you, whom to serve is perfect freedom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.